Shannon, how many times have you performed on stage in Atlanta? Um, well, once a month, every month since 2010, uh, roughly, because of Carapace. And then I've done a few one-woman shows here and there. So let's say, I don't know, 50. Is it easier or harder from when you started? Uh, it definitely gets easier. You sort of lose that that feeling of, oh my gosh, uh, they're all going to kill me or yeah. I'm going to pee on myself. Uh, but you continue to get better at feeling like you're connecting with people uh, over time. And then every once in a while, you forget to really prepare and it all goes south. Yeah. And then you remember that you still don't die. And th- that's like an endorphin rush, too. That's mm-hmm. like that's like a, a, a shot glass of Tabasco, mm-hmm. right? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That sucked, but I'm able to now see different colors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the getting a laugh mm. from a big audience is amazing. Absolutely. It's better than most things. Yeah. I have this one story that I use in my workshops where I go around and teach storytelling and I've sort of sacrificed it to the storytelling gods so it has no emotional resonance yeah, for me yeah, at all anymore. Yeah, just done it so many times. Yeah, exactly. But every once in a while it gets a laugh in a different place than it ever has before and that That's is a wild a, thing. It's so surprising and wonderful. Yeah. So why are we talking about this? Well, because... As our listening audience may or may not know, we are in the process of closing down the North Avenue Lounge. It's funny. Most people just cancel a show, but we're in the process of slowly draining it of all energy. No, no, no. (laughs) I think of it as like, well, the radio station is moving. And so we're sitting here amongst literally packed boxes. So we're in the process of packing up the boxes. Yeah. And um, as I do when I move, I like to reminisce. And so we're going to reminisce a little bit today about the shows that I've had with some of Atlanta's funniest people. Even though these are funny people, they're extremely thoughtful, rigorous, intelligent people about the work that they do. Nice. Let's get into it. Here we go. We're here today with the folks from Dad's Garage. This is Gina Rakiki and Chris Gray. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. us. Yeah. It's always fun to have our multiple guests from all over Atlanta, local people who done good is what we like to say. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start off talking a little bit with Gina. Gina, you are now the development director at Dad's Garage. I am. I am indeed. But you've been in relationship with them for a long time. I have. Uh, I lived in New York City for a while and... uh, After I moved down to Atlanta, I was trying to find the theater that I wanted to get involved with because I've been doing theater for a really long time. And I ended up going to see a puppet slam at Dad's Garage. And uh, Lucky Yates, uh, he's on Archer, on TV's Archer. He actually pulled me up on stage and uh, did part of his his puppet act with me. And I realized that this is the theater that I wanted to to be involved with. And uh, so they... They ended up having a, a, an opening for a wardrobe dresser for Reefer Madness, and uh, I have been there ever since, and I've done all sorts of different jobs there, from costume design to uh, mopping the floor, <laughs> <laughs> uh, improv, and scripted shows, and now I'm the development director. Yeah. And that means that um, essentially I help with uh, fundraising and locating grants uh, since we are a nonprofit theater. Uh, we rely heavily on those monies to help us keep uh, the operations going. Oh, fantastic. So let's back up a little bit. You sent me some biographical information so I could get to know you a little bit better. I did. And uh, it says, born in Bama. Yes, I was. <laughs> raised in, by parents from New York. 
Thank That's God. That's a, a bit of a culture clash right there. Tell me about your early life. It, it is. Uh, my parents are both from upstate New York, and uh, I was raised in Alabama in Montgomery, uh, and which is also called the Gump. Uh, <laughs> are you yeah. serious? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, it was it was really interesting growing up in kind of the they call it the buckle of the Bible Belt, and having parents who were from a completely different um, social background in the sense that uh, if I called the ma'am or sir, I got in trouble. Um, so <laughs> I, I grew up kind of straddling the Mason-Dixon line. So I like to say that I got uh, the sass and the the liberal views of New York with the, uh, the deference and politeness and uh, sweet disposition of the South. <laughs> so, Wonderful. yeah, but as soon as I, as soon as I graduated high school, I got out of Montgomery and moved to New York. <laughs> okay. You also say, been performing since I was 13. I'm a singer, actor, improviser, middling painter, writer, makeup artist, wig styler. Are oh, you yeah. wearing a wig today? I'm not wearing a wig today, okay. but I have a very large collection of wigs at home and I love them so much. Okay. <laughs> How many wigs do you have? Uh, over, I mean, over 25. Um, oh, wow. So I'm not, I'm not sure because you can have full wigs, half wigs, uh, oh. drawstring ponytails, oh. uh, three quarter wigs, three one quarter, quarter wigs, wigs. toupees, <laughs> mustaches, <laughs> beards, Merkins. Merkins. <laughs> okay. How did you get into that? Uh, spending a lot of time alone and <laughs> being in love with drag queens. Nice. As soon as I saw my first drag queen, which was uh, RuPaul in B-52's Love Shack yeah, video, yeah. I didn't realize that RuPaul was a drag queen. I thought that that was just the most gorgeous woman that I had ever seen. And then I eventually realized uh, that it was RuPaul. And I was like, oh, those are my people. I, I made the same queens. mistake. Right? <laughs> I was like, woo, that woman. Yeah, she looks. What? That, that's a guy? <laughs> RuPaul. Wow. Almost perfect. All hail. So uh, when did you get into improv? Uh, I got into improv in college, and then I actually, uh, when I lived in New York, uh, lived in the Cité, I got involved with uh, a couple of smaller improv groups, and I actually used to do improv above a peep show in Times Square. Wow. <laughs> above a peep show. Yeah, it was uh, it, after Giuliani took office, he started the Disneyfication of Times Square and um, certain uh, dance establishments uh, <laughs> were no longer allowed to uh, operate in the way that they had before and they had to become juice bars, mm -hmm. which meant that uh, the upstairs space uh, above the peep show uh, was no longer able to be used. So the stage that we performed on, yeah. the back of it was lined with mirrors. <laughs> Oh, and the dressing room the was one of the plan. most like depressing holes I've ever been in. Audience kept having to put quarters in yeah. to see the show. Yeah. The, and the theme, the theme of the place was circus themed. Okay. So there were all these clowns and carnival things that were hanging from the ceiling out in the lobby and they would slowly spin. It was, it was amazing. Oh my goodness. Wow. So in my experience of improv, it's a little bit of a male driven world it Would is you agree yeah it's primarily uh white males mm -hmm. so, uh, white straight males i will say how have you become so successful in that world 
Well, thank you for thinking I'm successful. <laughs> you are. I appreciate that. For just that. being hilarious <laughs> <Yeah>. and brilliant. <laughs> well, uh, one of the awesome things about uh, Dad's Garage is that they've been very open to and made it a uh, a point of pride to support and encourage uh, female improvisers. And uh, there is a very large cadre of uh, female improvisers there that are just amazing. Of course, the one everybody knows, uh, Ms. Amber Nash, uh, she was, she's part of the old guard. Uh, but then there are other amazing performers like uh, Megan Leahy, uh, Eve Kruger actually just moved on to Second City up in Chicago. Um, and we just, we have a lot of wonderful female performers there. And we, the, the structure of Dad's Garage, uh, because it's a collaborative structure, they uh, it's one of the only artistic uh, companies where the the company itself, everybody has a voice in the season that we plan and the the styles of improv that we do. So, uh, you know, obviously, you, if you want to get into improv, you want to take lots of classes and you want to work with as many different people as you can and I uh, want to read a lot and try to better yourself and have fun Mm -hmm. so but dad's is dad's has been my home so it's kind of my 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 cultural house oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah it's our clubhouse it's our clubhouse yeah Yeah. and so dad's is known as an improv company but it does quite a bit of scripted work as well yeah absolutely uh most of our uh scripted work is actually written and developed in-house uh and we have Musicals. We've done Song of the Living Dead, which is a zombie musical, uh, a musical called Musical Suck. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, Rathacon. Rathacon, which is where yeah. I first saw you, actually. Yeah, yeah Rathacon. That was probably one of my favorite shows, which is all about uh, con life where you, uh, you know, like Dragon Con or Comic Con and the people who are there and uh, just kind of compiling a lot of real life stories and a lot of jokes. And mm-hmm. it was a really good time. Uh, so we not only encourage our performers to perform, but uh, there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of directing. We have uh, DGTV, which is our video arm, and yeah, there's just, there's a lot of creating going on there. So So on top of these three other professional lives that you have, you also run a show in town called Naked City. I do. That is is my baby, and uh, Chris has actually read at Naked City before, Um, and uh, we're almost two years old now, and we operate out of the goat farm um, the first Monday of every month, and uh, where it came from is it was born out of... uh, a discussion with Nick Tikoski and Mike Johns, who are from Wright Club Atlanta. And we were talking about how we wanted to have something that Atlanta owned because Wright Club is based out of Chicago. So uh, we were looking at where there was a hole uh, in the Atlanta lit scene. And uh, we decided that Naked City would be the format. And essentially, it's anybody can sign up. You don't have to be invited uh, and you have five minutes to talk. And if you go over five minutes or if you go off topic, uh, which there's a themed topic every month, then you have to spiel, spin the wheel of consequences, which I love so very much. Oh, yeah. I think my first one, I had to spin the wheel. Yeah, it, it has it has <laughs> prize bags. consequences? There were consequences. Oh, yes. I, what was the name of the, the Batsuya water oh, challenge? Oh, that's... Ba- basically, I had to hold an egg. 
in my te- between my teeth while they squirt at me with squirt guns oh. for, for 60 seconds since yeah. I went over my time. That's terrifying. <laughs> so, yeah, there are prize bags and then there are punishments. Yeah. So <laughs> it all depends on what it lands on. So it's really raucous. It's really rowdy. But a lot of our readers have gone on to um, – work in other lit shows around town, uh, including Wright Club or Scene Missing ATL, um, a lot of good stuff. So uh, we, we like to consider it kind of the gateway into uh, Atlanta lit scene. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into the life of the luminous Jeannie Rikiki. Yeah. Oh, you're just scratching the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, let's take a few minutes to talk about you, your career path. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, being a black guy in a white male-driven there we go. Uh, profession. Um, how did you get into improv? Um, I'm kind of late to improv. I came uh, from being a stand-up comic. Uh, that was my first uh, career, I guess you could say, into comedy. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about that first then. Okay. Um, yeah, I started doing it in college. Uh, just doing open mics around college, things like that. Didn't really take it seriously. It was just a cool way to get extra beer money and uh, make people laugh. Um, and then after I graduated, it took a long hiatus until I moved to Atlanta um, in 2000. And then I wanted to get back into it. So really, I had just started writing, uh, not performing. And then <clears throat> in 2001, I discovered Atlanta's awesome improv scene. Um, I'm originally from Florida, hadn't seen improv, hadn't really been exposed to it. Um, so I saw Dad's Garage, Whole World Theater, different theaters around town, and then I got hooked. So I started taking classes, hoping it would help me with my stand-up. Um, and it turned out I kind of like it. Uh, I know it's blasphemous for me to say, but I like it sometimes a lot better than I like stand-up comedy. <laughs> Why would that be blasphemous? Oh, just, uh, you know, I always say stand-up, you know, is the girl that brought me to the dance. You know, and now I feel like I'm leaving with someone else, <laughs> you okay. know. You harlot. I know. I'm so easy. <laughs> so, so um, I, I'm curious. You mentioned to me earlier that you used to be in the military. Yes. And how, yeah. that's just, you're not the first guest that I've had who's now in performance that had come through the military, which we think of as such a sort of button down, do it, you know, somebody else's way, can't really have your own personality kind of profession. Yeah, it's kind of the pendulum swinging in the opposite extreme. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I was in the military. Um, I was in the reserves when I was in college, uh, basically get college money and, you know, they paid for school. Um and then when I got out, I was a commissioned officer in the Army. And then when I moved to Atlanta, um, I was in the uh, inactive ready reserve um, because I wasn't attached to a unit. So, yeah, when I got here and I started doing more artistic pursuits, um, I kind of like, I like this life a little better <laughs> than uniforms and, um, you know, everything being very regimented. The one thing I do miss about the military, though, and maybe it's because just like ego is, uh, you know, when pe- when you give people orders, they're supposed to follow them without questioning. <laughs> I like I like I kind of miss that where I'm like, you know, oh, just do it. <laughs> so you miss giving the orders, not being given. The orders. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. There. So how long have you been with Dad's Garage? Um, I've been there since uh, 2011 is when I came on board with Dad's Garage. I love it. Uh, yeah. Through their uh, their rookie program. Um where we auditioned to be part of their rookie cast for a year. And then they we workshopped. They uh, worked us into shows. And then uh, after that year, I was invited into the general company. And, yeah, I've been with them ever since. It's been awesome. And and which shows might people have seen you in? 
Um, definitely in our extreme improv elimination shows on Thursday night, uh, theater sports, Saturdays, and... Uh, I think you need to tell them about the format that you and your friends, uh, uh, the team that you yes. guys did. It's amazing. Okay, well, thank you. Well, speaking of uh, uh, black improvisers, um, at Dad's, there are five of us. So I came up with a show, um, and we call it The Dark Side of the Room, where the five of us basically do... Uh, the deleted scenes from popular movies, okay. but those deleted scenes all involve black characters. <laughs> you know, so we'll uh, we'll get a, an audience suggestion, and usually the movie, you know, like a John Hughes movie, something from the '80s or '90s, where there are clearly no black characters, um, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, you know, things like that. And we'll just do these deleted scenes with characters who are in the movie, but we're on the cutting room floor. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a it's lot fantastic. of fun. <laughs> they won week after week. We have a format called Cage Match, and they they destroyed. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. it's a, It's been a lot of fun. And as, in fact, what Gina was saying, how Dads is just being such a collaborative, creative environment. You know, just myself as, as a general, a new general company member and having this idea for a show um, and them really being behind it. And, you know, you know, helping us workshop and really giving us an opportunity to, you know, get it up on its feet for people to see. You have a very extensively developed website with a lot of videos that you've created as well. (laughs) I've not seen anything quite like it from somebody that I know in Atlanta. How long have you been working on that? Um, I've been working on that probably the past two years, three years. I've actively been trying to produce and write more videos. Um, A lot of them are just short you know, things that I can write and shoot myself. I was always a fan of uh, Saturday Night Live, the Jack Handy videos, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Deep Thoughts. Um, So I created a version of that, uh, what I call Moments of Distraction. And it's uh, just a, you know, a short 30 second video of just a funny thought or premise that I had. (laughs) Oh, I I was a big fan of the least interesting guy in the world. Oh, yeah. That one was inspired by, of course, the Dos Equis commercial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just... I just always thought it was just to have a version of that where this guy is just the most mundane life. I dated that guy, actually. Yeah, I've been that guy. <laughs> I think, I think I've dated to. that guy three times. You are listening to a selection of Best Of segments from Shannon M. Turner on the North Avenue Lounge. Today we're talking about all things nerdific, and uh, we're talking at the moment with Christopher Boltz, who uh, does many things nerd-related, including Nerdlanta, 8-Bit Comedy Night, and uh, a few other things we're getting ready to talk about. But first, I want to segue into a discussion about nerd culture. Mm -hmm. It has become quite the thing all across the country in popular culture. And obviously it's got a following here in Atlanta because there are a lot of smart people. Um, and yet there are a lot of people who um, you might not traditionally call a nerd who are sort of using that word in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about what I might say is the co-optation of nerd culture? Gotcha. Um, yeah. I think we were actually discussing this uh, earlier uh, with Brandon Um some people are saying that they're nerds if they um, if they like craft beer, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like I guess you can say you're a nerd, um, but I I feel like most people would associate uh, being a nerd with you know um, uh, sci-fi and fantasy and things like that and comic books. So it is interesting to hear people uh, out of the woodwork say that they're a nerd because they. Um, 
I, I don't know. I do my taxes, so I guess I'm a tax nerd. You know, like it's like you can literally just with about almost anything. I drink a lot of water, so I'm an H2O nerd. Like it's it gets a little crazy. There's actually a video series um, from Ladies Night. Uh, it's very funny, and it's about they actually address this issue perfectly with their video, and it gets worse and worse. It starts off where uh, this character is a fan of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, so he's he's a nerd of that. And then there's a skateboard nerd, and then eventually there's a a guy who just does a lot of drugs. He's a heroin nerd, <laughs> and then there's rednecks, and their rednecks are nerds now too. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, so it gradually just gets a little out of hand. But in honesty. In, in all honesty, it's uh, not too far from, uh, I guess, what I've witnessed as well. And uh, my answer to that is, um, I guess, be, to each their own, if you want to say that you're a nerd because you um, you do any of these activities. I think it's more you should say that you're passionate about it because um, I do think that takes away from people that, you know, like yourself and myself, that we grew up really being nerds like, you know, I wait in line for three hours to get a comic book signed. I think that's kind of nerdy. Um, well, but- it's interesting because I think in the 70s and 80s, it actually meant not just that you were fascinated by something and that you would spend a lot of time on it, but it also meant that a certain amount of intelligence and or that you were marginalized by mm-hmm. popular culture, by the, by the mainstream. Yeah. And now I think a lot of those people who uh, were popular or who didn't struggle in those ways, that's what I mean by they're co-opting the word. Okay, yes. And so that's why I had such a strong aversion to somebody saying they're a beer nerd because I have, you know, certain connotations with someone who might be a beer drinker then turning around and saying they're a nerd. But then you guys were like, oh, well, there's science around beer. So I get it. I get it, but it's just tough. It's a hard, hard pill to swallow. It's hard to know where to draw that line or if there is a line at all at this point anymore. Yeah. But yeah. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things that are strongly a part of um, nerd culture. There's comic books. um, And we've already talked about um, there's Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. What else um, sort of are identifying markers of real nerd culture? Um. Hmm. Well, you yeah, have comic books, uh, uh, Stranger Things, pop culture. Definitely, that's a huge uh, show that everyone's into. So that's, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, then um, tabletop gaming, um, board games, video games. I mean, there's there's so much out there. It's just it's endless. And, you know, if you uh, are a fan of any of the conventions, such as Dragon Con and all the panels, you're going to learn so much. But there's... Uh, there's quite a bit of content out there and for anybody that's into something, you're going to, uh, there's a lot to digest. And then there is this, um, war, which, uh, I know that, uh, is uncomfortable to talk about sometimes, but there's the Star Trek versus the Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm not asking you to pick a side, but I think it's fascinating that uh, amongst a culture that is already marginalized in a certain kind of way, that they further decide to be divisive amongst themselves. Right. Um, so in fact, I heard recently, you can look it up. It's true. These two guys actually got into a sword fight in a movie theater. (laughs) Sword fight. (laughs) Yes. Um, one was uh, pro Star Trek and the other was pro Star Wars, and they literally physically fought it out over which was better. 
Well, I think they're both wrong because I don't believe seeing swords in either Star Trek or nice. Star Wars. I <laughs> and actually, it's lightsabers and <laughs> pistols and guns. So I think they both kind of 86 each other out on that one. Right. That is hilarious, though. And I, I, uh, I, I, I picture people like at, uh, you know, sports events and how, because I make fun of the fact that they, they often have fights about uh, which team won and this and that it is kind of funny to hear about it uh as far as nerds is you know mm-hmm. that's that's interesting we have a few minutes left and i want to talk about your next big thing mm-hmm. um you're about to do a nerd dating show which is so mm-hmm. hilarious and exciting uh, especially because i am a nerd on the dating scene here in atlanta yeah. and we can tip our hand about this or not if you don't want to that's fine but uh your show is going to be called nerd love uh, yeah, love nerds. Oh, love nerds. That's okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we're working on that right now. Uh, myself and Amanda Marks and Corey Epps and uh, Joystick, we're all teaming together and uh, working on it. But uh, it'll be out soon. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of a, a, a nerdy version of the dating game. And um, I, what can I say? I, I look forward to it. And I think a lot of people are going to have uh, some fun. We're going to have the Bachelor and Bachelorette, and they're going to. There's going to be three contestants that are trying to win a date. The date will take place at Joystick, so kind of keep it all in one place. And um, hopefully, we can get some people connected and entertain audience while we do it. So the bachelors and bachelorettes are they going to be blindfolded? They will not. Actually, what's going to happen is uh, the way we've worked it out is the contestants are going to be wearing uh, a mask, like a, a Robin mask or a Zorro mask to cover their identity. How appropriate. We're going to give them capes. And then throughout the entire uh, show until the very end, when they you know get up, then you see who they truly are. And that was my way of thinking, well, how can we get around this whole we can't see you sort of thing? And uh, just logistically, it didn't make any sense any way that I had thought about it before. So I was like, let's this works out. It's sort of cosplay. It ties into the theme. So if you become a contestant on the show, be ready to wear a mask and a cape and, you know. Well, do we do they get to decide who they are going to be? Um. I don't think so. I think we're going to get some, like, just sort of generic, multicolored, different masks and different capes. Um, we could actually possibly go into full cosplay, uh, but I think that we might just keep it simple for right now and Makes sense. and do that. So should we go ahead and tell them? What's that? That I'm going to be one of oh, the contestants. yes. You are <laughs> going to be one of – you're going to be the uh, the bachelor bachelorette, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so this – on the fir- very first show. Yes. And I'm really excited about that. So um, I would say for the meantime, just uh, go to Facebook.com backslash Nerdlanta. We'll have updates soon about that. But we're very excited to have you on the first episode, and I think it's going to be so much fun. I so. can't wait. It's really exciting. I'm hoping to find the nerd love of my dreams. Um, what is, obviously you produce a lot of cultural events around nerding. What is your favorite thing to do that you're not making happen? My favorite thing to do that I don't make happen. I'm not involved with, Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Uh, okay. Why am I stalling on this? Uh, my favorite thing to do is when I can is to relax and binge watch as much as many episodes of whatever I happen to like lately it's been Rick and Morty um 
So I'm not involved in the production of that, but I do enjoy the show. And there's a lot of other shows that I like to just, and it's not very often this happens, but I, I, when it does, I like to binge watch these shows and, and that's it. Just call it a night. Mm. Is there anything coming out soon that you're looking forward to? Um, soon, uh, nothing uh, that I've seen, um, Actually, yes, uh, Stranger Things 2. Yes. That's coming out in October. Uh, I just saw the trailer uh, recently. I cannot wait for it. I got chills watching the trailer because they played Michael Jackson's Thriller mm-hmm. during the whole thing, and I was th- it was just great. So that's one thing I'm uh, looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to ask, I think, do we clarify this? You're not Batman on Beltline yourself, are you? I am not. (laughs) I I wish I could say I was. No, that's all Nathan Owens right there, and he does an amazing job with it. Uh, I don't know if I do so well uh, wearing that suit and the heat and, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. Um, He wears that outfit better than I probably could. Have you ever thought about being one of the characters? Um, I think I, I had this idea about uh, being like an agent um, to uh, either Batman or one of them and just be on my phone uh, talking during the uh, the filming of the video. But uh, no, I don't know. Maybe eventually uh, uh, Green Lantern would be kind of nice. Mm. I don't know. Or you could be a villain. Could be a villain too. I don't know which one I'd be. But <laughs> I mean, that would be an interesting way to take the show would be to start having the villains start trying to justify their actions or something. <laughs> we could have like a trash villain, somebody that just doesn't recycle and throw mm-hmm. trash everywhere. And that could be like, like the Joker or something. He just right. laughs about it as he's just like throwing plastic bottles everywhere, mm-hmm. standing next to a trash can. I see a lot of Jokers out there. Hey, this is Zach Miller, and you're listening to WREK Atlanta. Hi, this is the North Avenue Lounge. I'm Shannon M. Turner, and today we're listening to a collection of some of my best episodes. We're back on the North Avenue Lounge. Today we're talking with Nicole Kemper and Jill Pesesnik. <laughs> I had it and I lost it. Pashesnik. Pashesnik. <laughs> uh, about being women filmmakers here in Atlanta. Um, you guys actually work together on various projects. We do. Yes, we do. And what what are those projects? Um, well, the mother load was the first time that we met. Um, Jill and Joanna had moved here pretty s- soon after yeah. or before, I mean. Yeah, pretty soon. Yeah. It was long that you were months, here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, they came on as um, a script suit PA kind of thing um, at early on. And then as time went on, like, you know, I think you guys, we had you taking on more responsibilities, and more responsibilities. <laughs> you, you dropped in <laughs> a little bit of uh, jargon in there. So let's help people understand oh, what a, cri- a script soup is. Oh, a, a script supervisor uh, makes sure is in charge of continuity, which means like that things are going to cut together, that when you cut something together, it's going to look like it's all happening at the same time in the same place because you film things out of order. So you have to make sure that it all is coherent. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're video editors. Yeah. That's... So that that was a good job for them. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I always love watching something where, you know, they've really, you know, person's hair is flipped from one side to the other. Right, right. (laughs) That would be my job. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, but it's also as simple as like somebody crossing the screen in in the right direction or looking in the right place, like little things that you, you know, Mm -hmm. that you have to have somebody who's really detail oriented Mm -hmm. to pay attention to. 
So what are other things you have or are about to work on together? Oh, um, well, some has just been like crew for a bunch of our, yeah. <laughs> thankfully we all have, that's the benefit of like working in indie, the indie scene is because you learn so many skills and now you're just a huge asset to everyone around you. And, you know, we just constantly favors back and forth, you know, like yeah. we'll help out on her set and then she'll be, yeah. you know, fortunate enough to help out on ours. So she's like run sound for us a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, anytime they, they call me, I'm like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> yes, um, I don't think we, you've mentioned this yet, but they, a lot of that, not always, but a lot of times uh, J- uh, Jill and Joanna will do like an all female crew. Yeah. And that's like a really unique experience to work on. You like that never happens. And, you know, it's such an incredible environment to work on as a woman because there's no everybody just shows up and does their job. Like you don't have to show up and be like, OK, now I have to prove myself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as a as a you know, like I don't have to prove that I'm qualified. Everybody here just assumes mm. that I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like a lot, you can just show up and do your job. Yeah. Is that the only way it feels different? Well, uh, there's a big camaraderie. I mean, we're all very friendly people, have a lot of fun on set. Yes. There's just a, there's a, um, I mean, that pressure is off. And so Mm -hmm. then you can, there's, you know, more chance to be able to be yourself and maybe you feel like your ideas will go farther if you want to say something as opposed to just, you know, if it's, I mean, the film industry is male dominated yeah. and so sometimes you can easily felt uh intimidated or right. shut down or yeah i mean i guess i should specify that some like uh when you work on a set uh you know i we have uh, obviously we have men on our crews as well uh, on a lot of our shoots and and this doesn't occur but sometimes you'll go on a set and you find yourself being underestimated or assumed to have less skills uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, you know, it, it's all oftentimes because people, I feel like on a set don't believe that women are technically proficient. No, I, I, I so, hear you. Yeah. This was a big part of our conversation last week yeah. as well. And I, I have a friend who helped to start CNN back in the day and she mm-hmm. was, um, I think she started their science desk actually. And yeah. she talks about how she just had to, you know, pick up her equipment and you know do everything and just make sure but she said after a while you really felt like you had a giant chip on your shoulder because it was always there always there that feeling that you had to prove yourself over and over and over again while the guys as you say just got to do their job right just got to their job so you could you show up on an all-female crew or like you know i think on both both of our in both of our companies even when there are uh not and when it's not all women working on set, you cultivate a group of people around you that trust each other, and so it's refreshing when you walk on one of those sets and you can just show up and do your job, yeah, and not be like, I deserve to be here, guys. Exactly. You know, and um, another um thing that I like about or why we try and have all female crews is because we see so many talented women who work in production that want to do a certain thing, like we have so many friends that are, um, you know. Uh, ACs or PAs and their their skill level is so high and they want to be a you know director of photography or something but they just are simply not given the chance and so that's an opportunity where if you run your own set then and you know these people that are capable then it, like lets them give them the chance and the opportunity to to build up their reel or that's another thing about when you're working on low or no pay you know cr- um, sets is that 
uh, well, what can we give you in return to thank you? We can give you, a, you know, you can use this footage for your reel. So now that you can, now you can try and start your career as a DP, or now you have the back, you know, the backing of like this whole community that's like, yeah, you guys are all amazing at what you do. So what do you think it will take to start reintegrating sets in a way that feels more equitable? Wow. Um, That's a a really tough question to answer. I think, honestly, just kind of what we've been doing, you know... from the ground up like yeah. just just, just having, hire it one man at a time <laughs> <laughs> or just having more sets run by women you know we we both decided at one point in our careers we're just going to do this ourselves yeah so i think it and and now that we have the opportunity and we're at a place where we are successfully doing it we can empower other women and give other women an opportunity now they can start their own set you know just all these mini pop-ups of women taking mm-hmm. control of their own careers as opposed to feeling like they're um you know at the at the mercy of this machine yeah um i think one of the ways that we used to talk about it at meetings for critical crop top was that like you like keep waiting for a seat at the table and you're waiting and we're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and then finally you're just like you know what i'm just gonna build my own table mm-hmm. and yeah. i i feel like that's you know you have to go out there and do that and then yeah i'm just not sure if anybody's gonna you know, be willing to let you in exactly you know <laughs> they'll have to you know um yeah we're not going to wait for them anymore they can right. find us right. yep <laughs> well what occurs to me is that you have this um double layer of the comedy industry which is mm-hmm. extremely uh unhealthy for women um and yes it can be sure. yeah so uh, i wonder when you have you know film which is not so uh helpful for women and then comedy on top of that um because I, i've taken improv classes where the men just will not play with the women you know it's almost yeah. like you don't exist mm-hmm. in their world you walk on and they're like hi mom and you're like i don't <laughs> exactly. want to be your mom <laughs> i'll put their arm around you and yeah, yeah. 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 right so um it, when you have this, so you're looking through two lenses at the same time, or even if you separate them, the idea that maybe the we're just going to go over and play in our own sandbox for a while yeah, until exactly. they want to come play with us. Yeah, because yeah. fortunately for Atlanta, I mean, there's a lot of women who want to do, uh, who are in the indie um, production world, and also a lot of super funny, you know, comedians that are women that, you know... Uh, also need an opportunity and a platform and a voice and yeah we're, yeah and then lucky. once you start doing that you find that other people start gravitating towards you like other people that maybe don't feel like their voice is being heard in comedy mm-hmm. um or uh, or even men that want to do material that's not the same kind of machismo material like they're looking for something different as well and so you start attracting a group of people that want to make something that's different well why do you think it is that there's this perception that women aren't funny or not the same kind of funny because men uh, are threatened by funny exactly. and intelligent women <laughs> i think to it's a to take away power from women yep. if we're uh i mean being funny in my opinion is a um it's a it mean you know it's a I don't know, signal that you're also smart. You know, you get it. You can keep up. You can make jokes about things. You're, you know. Um, and so I think if you constantly undermine that it's, you know, that someone's never enough, you're never funny enough, never smart enough, then you take away people's power. Um, and so fortunately we have the, you know, or have um, just 
have confidence enough to know better in ourselves that we are funny and smart. Um, and having, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie, like having the community of, yes. uh, of, of like groups of, of pe- like-minded women and other communities that are wanting to incorporate more underrepresented voices, like having those communities popping up um, around town um, bolsters my confidence as an individual like to have the support of that community and to see other people doing it and you see that they're they're taking a big step and you're like oh they're doing this thing like we can do that too yeah you know and it just like creates an environment where people are are supporting each other but also challenging themselves more which is great so you've talked about this pressure to perform on a male set to prove your you know worthiness to be there do you find that there's pressure to be funny if you're in the comedy world do you have to show up and be funny over and over again? Or do you let yourself say, yeah, I'm not funny today? I, at least for me, um, everything that me and my sister do is pretty much like if we Hilarious. think it's funny. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, totally. But I mean, if we think it's funny, then we're going to put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, also, I think that because we're not dealing with anyone else's money right now you know it's kind of just up to our own taste and discretion so um that's one of the good things about you know working on an indie level is that you can kind of do what you want we think it's funny and then we do it and you know happy other people think it's funny too (laughs) yeah for sure there's a time in my life when it seemed to me that every uh seemingly funny person was actually deeply depressed (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, it just seemed like, yeah. you know, that classic image of the comedy and drama mask was, you know, that there were two sides to that uh, being funny was actually that they were masking the fact that they were a deeply unhappy person. Mm. But it, it feels to me that there's been a shift, maybe because the zeitgeist has moved toward, you know, people being hopefully happier people or at least being more um transparent about their unhappiness do you feel like the comedy world is a a healthier place than it used to be uh i think that i think that there's like a an image in general of the tortured artist that needs to go away where like you have to be tortured to make good art like i don't think that's necessary but on on the other hand uh i do think comedy is a good place to work out your anxiety like i think anxiety breeds good comedy and i certainly have been able to like uh work out a lot of things about myself that I feel anxious about, about, you know, my shortcomings as a parent or like, you know, uh, in our live sketch show, I'll usually write myself in as a character who like runs my business badly, (laughs) you know, like it allows you to make fun of things that you're insecure about, which I think other people can relate to and allows them to laugh at things in themselves that they are insecure about. Yeah, completely. I think that, um, not so much that, you know, comedy, comes from a place of like depression or that you have to be angry but more so honesty and so if you're you know um all of my sketches i mean a lot of them the ones that we do are pretty absurd but they all come from a place of like you know you had at least if it's not something autobiographical it's something you saw that sparked an idea just all you know so i think in no matter what sense it always comes from like a personal spot but i think honesty is key more so than uh, if if someone's depression is a part of their truth, then for sure it's going to make its way in their comedy. I don't think that's a prerequisite, though. I, I have a theory. All right, let's hear it. I think a lot about depression and comedy. Uh-huh. Um, so if you think about how Bob Hope and Henny Youngman are never thought as depressed people, you know the 
the time when comedy became a fight against an oppressive system, essentially, was the yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah. Those are our comedians, right? Everybody from Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor to Lenny Bruce to George Carlin, the folks who saw a possibility of bringing down corrupt and oppressive structures were comedians. And it was impossible at their time. They were being put in jail. They were being, um, not being, they got addicted to drugs. They, you know, were dying. And now I think the cracks have opened some. Like we believe that we can enact change through performance and comedy a lot more than folks in the 70s did, I think. That's my, that's my guess. Yeah. Mm. I also think there's an element of like, I mean, I don't know how everybody else grew up, but I was kind of a weirdo and I got picked on a lot. And like, I think that comedy is a good defense mechanism. And so like you learn, you learn as a weirdo that other kids don't maybe understand that if you make them laugh, you know, they'll, they'll like accept you Mm. a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) So I think there's an element of that also. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. This is the North Avenue Lounge. This is a best of show of the North Avenue Lounge. We're exploring shows by Shannon M. Turner. All right, we're back with a hoot nanny of a lot of segments. <laughs> Yeehaw, y'all. <laughs> We've been enjoying these commercial breaks as much as y'all have. Uh, this is the North Avenue Lounge in our final segment with Topher Payne and John Carr for the 2018 edition. We'll see you back here in four I'll see years. see you in four years. <laughs> four more years. <laughs> um, so, uh, Topher. You uh, you were just talking about the pitch session. You are in talks for another exciting new project. Oh, yeah. Um, so my most produced play uh, is a play called Perfect Arrangement, which we developed with Process Theater here in Atlanta almost 10 years ago. And uh, it's had a crazy extended life. We've been off-Broadway with it. We've been, I think it's been performed in 27 states now. Wow. Um, and it's been done by universities, which is really exciting and weird for me since I have absolutely no education whatsoever. And now kids have to write papers about my plays. Um, and now we are uh, in the process of uh, pitching a television adaptation of it. Oh, wow. And which has been the most intriguing piece of that is... I am revisiting characters that I put to bed years mm. ago wow. and had spent all of that time developing the script and and uh, working through various production processes, really getting a perfect two-hour version of those characters' stories and that moment in their lives. And... Um, you know, be careful saying you're done with anything. Mm. <laughs> and because now I'm afforded the opportunity to have this endless lands- landscape of exploring character and circumstance and where they were prior to the events of the play and well beyond it um, and the other people that conceivably populate that universe. And it is, as a playwright, a wholly unique experience for me. I can only imagine. I mean, you know, I'm a a professional storyteller and I really strive to tell people that there's no such thing as closure. There's only reevaluating your relationship to a story. Yeah. And so that's exactly what you've had to do. Yeah. In the same way that there is no such thing as past tense. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
every story that you have told along the way, and that's whether it's your profession or not, Mm -hmm. every story that you have told lives with you Mm -hmm. um, and continues to grow and evolve as you do. If you tell a story of what happened on prom night the morning after prom night, it's going to be very different than your version of it when you're 30. Yes. Mm. Same event, new perspective. Mm -hmm. Perfect arrangement. When I initially wrote it, I was certainly in a very different place in my life than I am now. We as a country 10 years ago were in a very, very different place than we are now. Aspects of the story gain terrifying relevance. It's set during the communist Red Scare, the 1950s and focuses on employees in government service who are eventually forced to choose between the authenticity of their own lives and service to a government that they find themselves consistently disagreeing with. But I also think that kind of in a in a grander scheme of like the community talks to how like important Topher is, I think, to like just the artistic community here in Atlanta. Mm. And for me, as someone who's just starting out in this area, there's so many, I see so many talented people and I see so many amazing people and we have this community full of these folks and it's always great to see someone taking that next step, taking that step outside and representing Atlanta and the writers and the community that we have here and doing something great like that. And it's, for me, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, there can be more. There can be more than just producing this at dad's and then that's it. Like the fact that he's able to do these things is like an inspiring thing for me to know there's so much more in that other end and it's always just cool to see it. And I think that's also really important to me because again, I growing up in LA, you didn't root for other people. If someone was (laughs) successful in LA here, you you wish they got a broken leg and you got the shot. Mm -hmm. But like here it's, we're all, rooting for folks and when we see someone like Topher that is doing it and making it it just it gives us all hope and inspiration Mm. and that's why he's important thank you for that after I saw Black Nerd I reached out to Suhaila Elatar who is one of my favorite writers and and said uh, um, I really don't know John that well but I want to reach out because I uh I want to make sure that Black Nerd is taken care of in its next steps Mm. um, because there is nothing more nerve-wracking than your first play um, (laughs) because you are learning the craft of playwriting and the business of playwriting simultaneously, (laughs) and it is a lot. And um, and I said, so I want to reach out to John. You need to see the show. And she's like, I already saw the show and I've already reached out to John. (laughs) And (laughs) and it's like, all right, you got a posse now. Yeah, well, that's that's the cool thing about it is like there are so many – just writers that I admire that reached out to me to offer help. Like it was, I I definitely reached out to folks and asked for help, but like so many people came and I was like, yes, all the help, give me all the help Mm because I have no idea what I'm doing. And Mm so it's been super cool seeing just people like saying, hey, we like what you did. We want, we're rooting for you too. So Topher, since we've sort of established this dynamic of like John is the five, ten years ago version of you in the same way that I love going back and reading my journal and be like, oh, you don't know. You don't know yet that this is the moment when this happens. You know, um, what what advice do you want to give to him? Um, prioritize your Atlanta community because uh, as time goes by and as you gain more professional experience, you will really... Um, gain appreciation for the rarity that Atlanta is as a community. 
Um, so cultivate and protect those relationships um, personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. And then professionally, don't be afraid or ashamed of identifying yourself as an Atlanta writer, mm-hmm. but as early as possible, cast the widest net you can on letting other communities know that you exist. Hmm. Um, If I could go back and do one thing differently, that would be the thing I would do differently. Um, I focused in on developing my voice as a playwright and cultivating professional relationships here. That was time very, very well spent. Um, But I was very insular um, in that creative process, I think because largely because I felt I didn't have the right to write. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to NYU. Mm-hmm. Nobody taught me how to write a play. I picked it up on the streets. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that, I was so hesitant to let people outside of the Atlanta community know what I was up to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who are far worse at this than you are who are beating down their door. Mm -hmm. Um, So please, please let them know you exist. They will be so relieved to find out. (laughs) And do you have a creative challenge or a piece of homework for him? Okay, so here's here's my genius idea for for a dad's show. Cool. All right, so you want to do improvised drama ministry. <laughs> and you take advantage of all of these southern improvisers who were raised in the church who know all the wow. same stories and it's like and you bring those people together and you do an improvised drama ministry. Wow, that is Break out the puppets. <laughs> all you need is a is a couple of headdresses. <laughs> See, in the same way that Topher was leaving those characters behind, (laughs) the puppets are back in your life, buddy. That is brilliant. Yeah, that is that is. There are enough of us. Yeah, because I have I have have an idea for two one acts that I've always wanted to do, Mm -hmm. where you do a drama ministry, and the first act um, is the adult drama ministry, Mm -hmm. um, doing the wife of Pontius Pilate, Claudia's (laughs) dream of Jesus, Mm -hmm. Um, and then act two is those same actors doing the children's ministry playing the children of the people we saw in the first act. That's my genius idea. I know I put it out into the world, but clearly if I were the one that was meant to write it, I would have written it by now. So there's a freebie out there. For, it's a prompt. That's amazing. That's that's great. Like it, it, But it's true. It's, like, it's amazing how many people again that goes back to that thing of like i i felt like i was weird like i'm the only person who has this like life experience but there's so many people who have had like that moment where they were brought up super religious and they Mm -hmm. were brought up in the church and they're doing some form of art now that it's there's because that's where we all fall in love with storytelling yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah Uh, because it is it is that thing of there, there are those moments in church where you have this incredibly emotional response and you feel, and, and it's also that idea of like in church, you have an emotional response, but then there's a call to action. There's a call to, all right, you feel this now do something. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that excites me about storytelling is I don't want you to just feel this thing, but now I want you to take action. I want you to do something. That's precisely, with that. yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the only place you'll find that in that purest form. Right there in church. Yeah, best-selling book of all time, guys. (laughs) (laughs) John, you mentioned that, I mean, you've both talked about how nurturing and connected the Atlanta arts community is. Are are there any other um, 
maybe even less uh, appealing aspects of making your way as a in the world today, which takes, <laughs> takes everything, everything you got. got. Yeah. <laughs> I think we did this before. Um, any, anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of being a professional artist in Atlanta? I think the biggest thing for me is that we've just hit this point where we have so much talent and so much support that now it's time to do the the business side of it like it's mm-hmm. we're that the big next hurdle for us is finding connecting business and decision makers with our artists so that Atlanta becomes this place it should be a launching pad this should be a place where people from all over the world come to Atlanta because they know they're going to find a supportive community and there's an opportunity to go further versus you have to leave Atlanta in order to be successful. And I, and I, I genuinely, which I can go back to California anytime I want. My, my parents are, I have a family out there. I could try to make it in LA in the movies, but I'd much rather just help this community. Mm-hmm. And I'd much rather just be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I moved here when I was 19. Um, I was uh, I can still remember what arts funding was like in Atlanta pre 9-11. Um, And so I remember that first hit. I remember the second hit of the 2007 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, I am so weary of uh, corporate entities um, or even private entities using um, examples that are <laughs> that are more than ten years old, mm-hmm. um, almost twenty years old, as reasons why they do not support the arts in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, we will be as good as Atlanta decides we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they do high school matinees of my plays in other cities, um, and and then. In Atlanta, they get a mature content warning, Mm -hmm. and it's the same play, (laughs) I assure you, because I check. Mm -hmm. But, um, but if you if you want us to be um, the tremendous force that we can be creatively, um, then go to a play, Mm -hmm. Um, go to the Atlanta Film Festival, support local filmmakers. For Mm -hmm. goodness' sake, I don't want to continue to be an anomaly as an Atlanta screenwriter making my living as a screenwriter but living here yeah. I, I i would love for more people to come to that dinner party well you know this brings to mind a story that i just heard for the first time last night about how there was uh, supposed to be a dinner in honor of dr king after he won his um nobel laureate and uh they wanted to host a dinner an interracial dinner for the you know as a first of its kind event and no one would buy tickets and so the president of coke gathered a bunch of other business leaders at up at the piedmont driving club and publicly shamed them for not stepping up (laughs) to the plate and basically he said um atlanta coke does not need atlanta but Atlanta needs Coke and we could leave any moment. We could bring our headquarters anywhere else in the country. Um, do you want us to stay? Cause if so, y'all need to start buying tickets to this event. <laughs> nice. Cause it's, it's so embarrassing yeah. that we are not able to support this luminous person. In Thank our, goodness. Yeah. That example from 40 years ago has no relevance now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I feel like if artists could say the same, like we, we don't have to make our careers here, it, you know, Artists don't need Atlanta, but Atlanta needs the arts. I do disagree on that. Okay. We do need Atlanta. We absolutely need Atlanta. What makes 
our voices unique mm. um, and fascinating is the fact that we create here. Nice. So please help mm-hmm. us out. Okay. Well, on that note, we've been talking with John Carr and Topher Payne, playwrights, improv uh, comedians, uh, <laughs> screenwriters, uh, all these things extraordinaire. Thanks for coming back on the show. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, This is the North Avenue Lounge. You can find this show and many others on our website on NorthAvenueLounge.com as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. 